Welcome to the Evolving Enterprises podcast. I'm delighted to be joined uh, again by Jim Scholes. Jim has recorded one, one episode looking at essentially the change process and how we can be sort of part of that kind of change process and the, some of the secrets to it. I've got some more questions to ask Jim. So welcome, Jim. Welcome along. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. And uh, um, let, let's hope that I've got enough to share on the uh, questions that you, you're posing. Sure. So just, just as a, a brief intro, so Jim is both an, an academic and practitioner, um, known very much by the, uh, for the academic community as being um, one of the people working very closely with Peter Checkland in his days of developing soft systems methodology. And also Jim's had an immensely successful career as a consultant. So um, Jim, there's a couple of things I was going to ask you about. The first one is, is around the, the key things to look for as you take on a, a consulting assignment. So essentially, what separates out the transformable from the immovable? It's the, the, the uh, sort of really the million dollar question, isn't it, as a consultant? You don't want to get involved in things which are going nowhere. But equally, there are, you know, there are lots of projects that are just immense, uh, you know, immense opportunities. So for you, what were the kind of key things to look for as you begin that assignment? Well, first of all, I think, as I've shared with you before, I think as a consultant, one has to recognise it's a it's an enormous privilege, in a sense, to be given licence to go and do things in, and possibly to, an organisation. So I think one has to approach it with a degree of humility. So having said that, it, it does become clear over time and over a range of assignments that some would be better not undertaken and others would uh, are really ideal for transformation at a, at a strategic level. So if I try and frame uh, a response to the question you raise, I think Probably two things come out uh, based on my experience. One is we could almost describe it as preconditions for success. You know, what what are precisely the things one ought to look for uh, as a, as an outsider to judge whether or not an intervention is likely to be successful. Very closely related to that is a notion of what tend to be discovered as the biggest obstacles to change. So, in other words. If you do take on an assignment, what are some of the obstacles you might reasonably anticipate and how can you deal with them? So I'll try and deal with the, the question around those, those two points. I mean, firstly, it's very hard to turn down a possible assignment as a consultant. But one of the things I've learned is that sometimes it's smart uh, not to get involved or indeed to help the potential client reframe their priorities maybe not undertake this assignment, but focus on something else. The consulting space in which I worked was mostly around strategy, growth strategy, and the necessary organizational transformations that have to take place to enable such strategies to work. So it was fairly kind of high-level stuff where success was not generally guaranteed. Now, what we found in doing that kind of work was one of the obvious preconditions was the extent to which the chief executive is actually involved in the work rather than simply sponsoring or reviewing the work. If the chief executive isn't dedicating some time towards the the challenge of transformation, some time directly in the context of the intervention, then 
you're off to a pretty poor start. So that's almost a precondition, I think. As is the extent of top management involvement, the, the top management team, are they involved or do they show evidence of being reasonably committed to action? I haven't yet come across a top management team where everybody agrees on everything, and indeed one shouldn't expect that. So not all will share the same level of commitment or enthusiasm, but you have to work with the top management group to at least agree to what extent they will be personally involved, what particular tasks they will take on, what kind of resources they'll allocate to the project, and how they'll go about making decisions in real time during the project. So the kind of interventions I worked on didn't result in a a report for approval at the end of a piece of work. Decisions were being made real time during the course of the project. And I think this is pretty important when one looks at the challenge of transformation. It's not about a final report and a set of recommendations It's about identifying and agreeing actions to take during the course of the work. The intervention itself is part of transformation. It's not simply resulting in transformation at some point in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's a very good good point, isn't it? It's about really leading up towards those actions. So I think what you're saying is it's about focusing on the actions and making sure that everybody is sufficiently on board um, with the fact that there's going to be some actions that they're going to need to be taken, etc., um, and, and the, the sort of the alarm bells for you would be if you don't get the, you know, the, the literally the time in the diary with uh, the CEO and the senior management team. And that's a very good point because there are you know assignments where people are kind of very keen to to get others to to, to run them. And for this level of work, you're absolutely right that that isn't going to work. I really like what you said at the beginning in terms of the privilege. I think that's that's something that. Some consultants are, are um, kind of known to overlook a little bit. And I, I certainly share with you the, the the absolute privilege to be part of some of these conversations that no organisation would share with you know their, with anybody other than their their closest you know people. So it really is it truly is a, a privilege to work on these uh, activities with um, with the senior leaders. Um, Moving on from from that and the, the sort of looking at you talked about the obstacles and the things that that sort of um, would would prevent sort of change. How do you get to that sort of discussion with them about the obstacles? Do you are you trying trying to sort of look at what's what are the obstacles in the minds of the seniors at the beginning, or how do you, how do you get to that discussion? The the start of any project in my kind of context would be to conduct a, a relatively brief diagnostic which would be partly data-based, looking at how the organization is performing, looking at how it's performing versus its competitors and so forth, looking at perhaps some of the perceived problem areas within the overall business portfolio, but also one-on-one interviews with the senior folks, some focus groups within the organization and so forth. So gathering some hard and soft inputs to a diagnostic and That would provide the context then for the discussion with the senior executives about the design of the intervention. No two interventions look precisely the same, maybe following certain principles, but they they don't necessarily look the same when drawn out on, on paper. And also the nature and extent of senior executive involvement. And indeed, what level of 
internal resources they would need to apply to do the work because the the philosophy that we adopted in this kind of work was that it really has to be done within the organization. We worked with internal teams and having senior folks allocate the right people, their best people, to this kind of work is is quite a challenge. So the diagnostic provided the basis for the design of the intervention and for the resourcing plan and the initial conversations with senior folks about what would be needed during the course of the work. So we'd be looking at things like, uh, well, I mean, at a fairly basic level, for example, are there other competing, we'll call it competing initiatives that are going on right now? So in other words, is there a real risk that the organization, people in the organization will feel overloaded with initiatives? They don't know where to allocate their time. It's often the case that top management aren't well enough connected to all of the things that they decide the organization should be doing. And uh, it's not unusual if you look through sort of CEO and indeed chairman reports to shareholders, they, they will list a whole range of wonderful initiatives that the organization's undertaking. In my experience, if you've got too many, nothing gets done. So the real question is about where to focus. And we'd look at that in the context of, of a, a diagnostic. We'd look at what are the things that are actually consuming top management's time and attention right now, because they're probably going to have to shift some of their time and attention. Aspects such as the culture, the values, the behaviors, the quality of management, their past experience of working with consultants. What do they tend to expect from consultants? And is it different to what it is we think will be needed in this particular case? And we try and frame our view based on this diagnostic, of the key challenges that the client faces. And that framing may well be different to their initial concept of what would be needed. But we try and provide it independently. And that provides a basis for deciding how to conduct the project. And indeed, how the project might then connect to a going forward plan beyond the initial initiative. Absolutely. And that's so vital, isn't it? That that kind of early engagement and the, the early view from that diagnostic is, is so essential to then set the tone for the way that your the activity then progresses through uh, through the organisation. Um, so that's, that's yeah, it's, it's, it's vital, isn't it, as a, as a sort of um, starting point to kind of start off on the right foot and make sure that the, the assignment's sort of focused uh, well. Uh, I really like what... It is, and... Sorry, Martin, just to add a, a wee bit to that, if, if, if I may, I think uh, in, in this kind of conversation at the early stage, my experience has always been that the, the, the real focus of the discussion needs to be around, with, with senior executives, needs to be around what kind of outcomes are you looking for here? What's going to be different? What, what is it they're really expecting? Because if we f- can focus on the what's, the outcomes, then it's usually possible to design a reasonable process, intervention process, which engages their people, uses their time wisely, and so on and so on. But we don't make too many assumptions right at the beginning. Very often, senior executives, and I understand the pressures that they're under, but they will come out with rather bland statements of aspiration. Most strategic plans that we look at really don't have that much substance when you start to dig into them. I think strategy is much more about what you do rather than what you say. There's often a disconnect between the two. So that conversation about what's going to be different, 
what outcomes are we looking for? How would we judge the quality of outcomes? Which may be in straightforward business terms, uh, growth opportunities, but they may also be behavioral in the sense of do we work differently? Do we have new ways of working? They may also be around skills or competences that are built through experience of doing new things and so on. So that focus on outcomes, I think, provides, uh, in a sense, a, a, a reasonably solid reference point for the ongoing dialogue that takes place with top management during the course of the transformation project. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, it very much follows um, the, the, the work of Covey on um, the seven habits of highly effective people. Begin, begin with the end in mind and, and then everything else sort of falls into place from behind that. It's absolutely focusing on the difference. What's what's going to be different? How do you measure it? How do you know you've got it? What does quality look like? Um, it's it's so important, isn't it? Everybody has their own different definition of, of quality and what something looks like in the city. That may be purely about numbers. In other organisations, it may very much be about you know, some numbers, but also, uh, as you said, some behaviours, some different ways of working, some changes. That's That's really fascinating. So knowing what you know now about transformation, having looking back on your career, both in academia and um, in consulting, what do you think you would have done differently? If you could sort of, if you were setting out again, what would be, what what would you change? What would you do differently? This is probably the the toughest question, I think, for any of us to answer, honestly. I I mean, I I think I've said before in previous conversation, I, I feel very fortunate, actually, to have had the opportunity to work in a consulting role, to work in academia, to have a variety of careers. And I think I've, as an individual, I feel I've learned quite a lot through that process. So I don't know that I would necessarily change very much. I think if I reflect on the sort of accumulated knowledge over time, you know, it's for sure... I could probably have designed some better projects, designed some better interventions, managed differently, and so on. But I think what I find is is the most difficult thing to convey, and it's not easily covered either in a consulting context or, or indeed an academic context, is where we go from that initial period as individuals, where we go from that initial period of understanding some of the theory around, for example, intervention systems, thinking whatever topic you want, strategy, whatever topic you want to pick out. As individuals, we go from that initial understanding to accumulating experience of working in those areas in practice. Because the accumulated experience, I think, is, is different for each one of us. And in some sense, knowledge, my knowledge, I think is it's difficult to transfer you know i can i can write or i can i can speak as we are now but how how do i transfer that knowledge and what i what i realize is that the difficulty is in terms of sharing experience it's often the case certainly in academia that folks want more and more case studies and you know case studies are great for teaching they're very helpful but actually in my experience, generic case studies don't add that much to knowledge. Knowledge, I think, is much more about experience. So if I can reframe slightly the question you raise and ask myself, well, okay, 
what would I do differently having based on the experience that's been accumulated over time? I think what I would probably do is be a little more selective about where I allocate my time because not all consulting activities are equally valuable, either in a commercial sense or indeed in a, a learning sense. And learning to say no without giving offense to a would-be client is probably one of the most important and difficult things. Knowing when not to do something when a client is asking for it is very important. And it requires a certain amount of skill, I suppose, to be able to have that kind of difficult conversation. But there are occasions where it is better not to undertake the work. And indeed, there have been occasions where as a consulting firm, we chose not to undertake assignments, even with quite well-known and well-regarded companies, because we could see, or we believed we could see, that the, the conditions wouldn't be right. There are other things going on that would have made it very difficult in practice to deliver what the client was looking for. So I think that's the kind of thing that one gains through experience. So it's not simply knowledge, but it's knowledge in practice. And experience is very difficult to transfer. We can try and transfer it through stories. Or we can try and transfer it through this kind of conversation. But I think each individual, and this is probably the most useful thing I can offer, each as individuals, we should each be looking at what we can learn th through the projects we do. And we should try to organize ourselves in a way that we allow that little bit of time for reflection when a project has been completed and ask in a reasonably serious way, what have we learned that's new from this assignment? Because no, in my experience, no two assignments are precisely the same. And I think if we can learn from each assignment, then we build our own level of knowledge and experience and each practitioner will use that in their own particular way. Yeah, that's very true, isn't it? The, um, and I think Personally, I think there's, if, if it's possible to do this, I think the um, building that knowledge both at the beginning and at the end. So going into an assignment thinking, well, what is it that would be really good to know about this, whether it's about a new sector or a new area of work or just, you know, a different perspective, a different type of client. But I think it's it's both at the beginning and the end. There's, there's, a, be a, you know, there's a very useful sort of period of time at the end to take stock of things. But I think there's also that kind of beginning where it's possible to figure out sort of what, you know, you could learn um, you know, from, from that assignment as well. I think for me personally, that's kind of where I've felt able to occasionally operate across the boundary, in a sense, between being a consultant for a living and making occasional contributions to academia. It primarily to do with being able to run those parallel and interconnected paths of theory and practice. So being reasonably explicit about theory and being fairly rigorous in summarizing what's been learned through practice. There is a connection, and I, and I think often we find it difficult as individuals to pay enough emphasis to both sides of theory and practice. Yes, absolutely. There, there are, yeah, there are many examples where people who are sort of spending a bit too long in one, one camp or the other become less useful. There is that, um, as, as your career has demonstrated, there's that wonderful sort of space where 
you know, being able to, to gain the most from you know, the, the, both the theory and practice is immensely powerful. You talked about saying no, going to the part where you, you kind of have to say no to a client. What was your approach to doing that? Did you sort of explain you know, why you felt it wasn't right for the client? I mean, what, what some organisations do is they would put such a high fee on it that no one would ever say yes. That, that is a, it's a bit of a cop-out, really, isn't it? It's, it's not, not the ideal way. What was, what was your approach? It does vary, of course. But I mean, if I just give you a cu- couple of illustrations. First thing is the, the importance of that initial diagnostic that I mentioned earlier. Because that initial diagnostic should be the basis of having a conversation about what needs to be done. And it's, it's the opportunity, in a sense, as a consultant, to hold up the mirror to the organization and say, look, this is what we think you look like right now. Beyond that, there are, there are at least a couple of, uh, I'm, I'm not going to talk about particular companies, but a, a couple of kind of examples uh, I, I can share. Well, actually, I'll make it three. First one is the company is trying to, or the organization is trying to undertake this initiative because they perceive that their competitors are doing more or less the same thing. Okay, so it's fashion. There's no great motivation for doing it other than the fact that it is fashion. They're ill-equipped to do it. They've got other priorities or whatever. And really, you know, they, they shouldn't simply be following fashion, at least in the kind of work that I did. They should be figuring out what they needed to do next as an enterprise. Related to that, there's the question, uh, which is really, it's, it's initiative overload. As I think I said earlier, often when you get, uh, let's say, a new chief executive or a new management team, they'll list out many things that they're going to do with the organization. And the organization's got absolutely no capacity to do all these things at the same time. So, you know, the diagnostic would be likely to show up that actually there are several competing initiatives here. There may be some pressing urgency in restoring, you know, operational performance in in a particular area rather than undertaking some wholesale transformation. So, again, you know, that would, well, it's quite often the case, I think, that enthusiastic new chief executives try to take on too much too soon. The third one, and I guess they're all really quite closely related but the third one is where really the advice to the organization we've done this with quite very very large actually blue chip companies we said look we can see what you're trying to do here and in our professional opinion based on what we have learned elsewhere done elsewhere now isn't the right time it may be the right thing to do in principle but you have other things, you've got other fish to fry, shall we say. You've got other things that probably need to take priority over this. We'd be delighted to come back and talk to you again in six months if you want to talk to us or in a year's time. But our professional view is that there are other things you should focus on because if you try and do this now, we believe it will not work. Yes, absolutely. That's, a, that's a, another really, I think we've, we've all seen um, within organisations all three of those elements coming to, to, into play. There's certainly very much something there about fashion that when when chief executive sees another one doing something, they tend to want to follow if they possibly can. Uh, initiative overload, I think, is I mean something that seems to be you know, just prevalent these days. There are so many organisations that have one initiative after another, um, in part because of the, as you said, the enthusiastic chief executive. But I think also because the shareholders are often demanding you know, a lot and therefore to, to kind of um, make things uh, sort of manageable with the shareholders, 
a lot of senior managers will be wanting to say, well, yes, of course, we've got an initiative on that. Of course, we've got an initiative on something else. And and then there's, there's the timing. There's, can you do it at the right time? And we've, we've actually focused, found a sort of an interesting route around through the, the early parts of soft systems methodology. So there's the, the first sort of set of questions would be, you know, what you're doing and why you're doing it and how you're doing it. And that's very much what we've, we've sort of um, looked at recently, isn't it? The, you know, what, what is it and how do you measure that and why, why do you want that and what's, what's really the driving force behind that? So that's clearly part of that initial sort of stock take that you, you do as Possibly to work. And, uh, in my experience is shareholders are usually not that complicated. <laughs> they have high expectations, but when you boil it down, they're not really looking for too many things. And again, the focus the senior management team has to have with the board and with the shareholders is on outcomes. What kind of results they're looking for? Not the hows, but the whats. Because the if 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 a management group doesn't have some control over hows, well, they're probably redundant. To be honest, there tend to be relatively few whats in terms of what must be achieved. There sometimes needs to be a prioritisation because not everything can be delivered, but that's a reasonably serious and manageable conflict conversation in in my experience the hows there are lots of uh, lots of choices you know in terms of time scale resourcing and so on and so on but again i think you know i i I leave to top management how they deal with shareholders but the better management teams seem to find a way of doing it and the answer isn't always to say yes what shareholders want is clarity and if there's clarity of focus and the organization is lined up to deliver broadly in line with shareholder expectations, then management teams tend to be left alone to deliver. They're judged on whether or not they do deliver. That's a really great, great point, though. Yeah, it's about sort of essentially getting getting those um, the, the, the what's in place, getting that to be right and making it consistent and making it work with why. And then, as you say, the, the how can then follow through. That's brilliant. Thanks, Jim. We're, we're just about out of time uh, today. I could I could talk with you for many days about uh, all of the uh, different aspects of transformation and uh, the, the incredible career journey you've had. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jim. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Catch up at some uh, future date, I hope. Absolutely. Thanks, Jim. This is the Evolving Enterprises podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>